think about the value of a post-mortem when it comes to what happened in an actual active shooter situation. And the odds are that many of us will never experience that. But how valuable um, would it be to speak with peers who have gone through those crisis situations? Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. How is your organization security? It's cybersecurity, physical security, or internal security. Do you have a chief security officer? If so, how does that person coordinate the many levels of security that your business needs? In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence learns some best practices from Joseph DeSalvo, the chief security officer at the Blackstone Group. He has more than 20 years of corporate security experience and a successful record of leading federal law enforcement and global risk management. His first rule of thumb, collaboration. Let's listen. Joe, it's a great honor and privilege just to be able to have a conversation with you and, quite frankly, uh, share with our audience uh, the accumulated wisdom of your years of service, both at the FBI uh, and a variety of private sector uh, enterprises. And it's been my good fortune uh, to stay in touch with you over these years. And without revealing too much about our respective ages, uh, when you were younger and I was younger, uh, the ability to work with you as a prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District was uh, certainly uh, one of my highlights and the fact that we could stay in touch and continue to work together uh, during our respective careers in the private sector has certainly been the unexpected uh, surprise and, again, a privilege. So welcome today. Thank you, David, and, and thank you um, for your comments and certainly all of the support that you provide not only to my team at Blackstone, but also across the Blackstone Enterprise. So I thought a good way to sort of begin would be an introduction. And if I find that you're being too humble, I'll jump in. But maybe you could just talk a little bit about uh, your career at the FBI and then uh, as you transition into the private sector, the different positions that you've had. And I think the context of that will be very important in terms of some of the insights that you'll be sharing with us today. Sure. Thank you. Um, well, I, I spent my years as an FBI special agent in the New York office where I worked on financial crimes and government fraud cases and um, had the uh, good opportunity to work with many of the AUSAs in your um, uh, department in the criminal division and um, most notably on the retrial of a government um, official that had um, been convicted of um, paying kickbacks. Um, I then had an opportunity to move on to Bankers Trust Company and run uh, global financial crimes and anti-money laundering. Um, after the acquisition of Bankers Trust by Deutsche Bank, I stayed on for a few years and ran that same program um, for the Americas. Um, and then I moved on to Charles Schwab, where I was very fortunate to um, work for Charles Schwab, the founder and CEO, then CEO and chairman of Charles Schwab, um, to initially work on brokerage fraud and bank fraud after the acquisition of U.S. Trust, uh, private bank here in New York, but then more broadly um, on the entire physical security, business continuity, um, and crisis management programs there. Um, 
After that, I was very fortunate to be selected as Iron Mountain's inaugural chief security officer, so a relocation from San Francisco to Boston for me and my family, um, where I then built uh, uh, Iron Mountain's first enterprise-wide global security program. Um, After that, um, after a few starts and stops at some other companies to to focus on really mission-specific uh, duties, most notably at Garter World, to be their chief security officer, um, to work, help them through the transition of their acquisition of 33 Bank of America cash vaults um, into the Garter World um, company. Um, I was fortunate enough to get the offer to join Blackstone as its first chief security officer and help them build their program there. And Joe, I'm going to take a, a moment just to make sure our audience is familiar but one of the things that I found particularly unique about your career and what has, I think, given you that depth of experience and the insights that you have is that um, you worked at companies that were actually, I'll, I'll call them precursors to the current landscape. And, for example, there's a tremendous focus on fintech right now. And uh, what I'll refer to are digital platforms, whether it's for payments, for broker-dealer, for banking, etc. Your position at Charles Schwab, um, Chuck, as many people refer to him, was really the first innovator uh, in terms of online accounts and taking advantage of the digital world in terms of communications, making it cheaper and easier for people to invest money. So you were in that position before the term fintech existed, uh, before the notion of data retention and cloud storage. You were at Iron Mountain, uh, still is, I guess, the global leader in uh, the protection of documents and records and preservation of that. And Garda, uh, which is a global, you know, company itself, which is responsible for the movement of money and uh, assisting in payments and certainly uh, the availability of cash and other types of things, but, you know, was a leading security firm around uh, the payments uh, area. So even before you got to Blackstone, my feeling is, you know, you sort of, you know, you saw the future and you got to experience it. And that's informed a lot of your thinking about risk management and business continuity and uh, crisis management as well. Have you ever thought about your career, by the way, in, in those terms? No, I haven't. But I, I think that's an interesting way to um, look at the progression of, of, of my career and the stops that I've made. Certainly, they're no coincidence. I think each step has built on the previous step. Certainly, when I was at Schwab, uh, it was the height of what's known as the dot-com trading bubble. Um, in those years prior, just prior to 9-11, and that led to an incredible um, strategy to do international acquisitions by Schwab, which had been primarily a domestic broker-dealer prior to that. Um, And then with the acquisition of a world-class private bank, U.S. Trust, um, Schwab's operations really went from a broker-dealer entirely online to uh, banking, which as, as... as you know, um, the regulatory differences between a broker-dealer and a bank are quite significantly different. So we had to be uh, very thoughtful 
um, about the security that we were providing to our customers and for the protection of the assets that we had uh, that were entrusted to us by our customers. Um, and then, of course, making sure that we were in compliance with the regulatory landscape. Um, moving on to Iron Mountain, uh, that served me very well, as you quite rightly pointed out. Iron Mountain um, is the custodian of physical and electronic records um, for the world's most regulated companies, banking, insurance, medical. Um, and of course, you know, those organizations have a um, requirement to safeguard the, informations, the information that their customers um, and their patients entrust to them just because a doctor's office or a bank gives that over to Iron Mountain to store in compliance with retention rules um, doesn't mean they can pass that risk to Iron Mountain. They have to be responsible for it. And so as they pass it to Iron Mountain, we needed to make sure that we were equipped uh, from a security and technology perspective to safeguard that information um, and preserve the fiduciary responsibility that our clients were providing um, to their clients. And then, of course, Blackstone um, and Garter World, again, Garter World, billions of dollars of cash inventory um, that is owned by retail banks uh, that is used to fill up their ATM machines and to provide cash currency to their retail customers. It's an awesome responsibility for uh, Garter World and other armored carriers and um, cash vault operators to protect that while it's at rest in their cash vaults, but then when it's in transit, um, of course, increases the risk significantly um, as those as that currency is being used by the carriers to fill up ATM machines and deliver it uh, to um, retail clients. And of course, uh, Blackstone has um, an extensive amount of global private equity partners and residential communities where the safeguarding of that business essential uh, information is used for acquisitions um, and private equity transactions that um, have, you know, there's no higher level of security um, for trade secrets and transactions that need to be applied anywhere else um, beyond um, those kinds of transactions. So, Joe, I like uh, the use of the term uh, progression. Uh, each sort of uh, position that you had in your career sort of helped inform the next level of, of assignment. And very often, um, not only the, you know, people have a certain view of a chief security officer, but even companies that hire know that they need a chief security officer, um, may not agree on sort of the definition of that job and the roles and responsibilities. And because of the different positions you've had and very often you know, the trusted relationship you had uh, at the, and, and still have at the highest levels. Um, one of the efforts that we've had at Rain is to educate, try to educate companies about the full spectrum of what a chief security officer can bring to the table and their roles and responsibilities. And I think, you know, very often uh, people have this preconception, uh, which is a point of frustration for the men and women who are often hired out of the public sector, that uh, it's about glocks and locks, that it's a physical security position. It's about, you know, alarms and access technology and things like that. 
And yet I've known, and I've known, you know, since my days at the U.S. Attorney's Office when, you know, we had a case with a corporation that a chief security officer, their the role, the responsibility, and most importantly, the talents that very uh, that so very many of the men and women bring to the to the job can either be appreciated in its fullest spectrum and potential, or sometimes can be um, underappreciated or underinformed in terms of how that role is shaped. And so what I'd love to do because of the different positions you've had, and, and I have firsthand knowledge of some of the very the wide spectrum of matters that you've been asked to help manage and handle is maybe to have you um, speak a little bit about the role of the chief security officer, what it is, what it can be, and the types of skill sets that uh, very often men and women can bring to bear to help manage risk, um, irrespective of the company or the industry, and or, or even the region of the world in which operations occur. Um, yes, I, I, I think, um, you know, I think really the fundamental, most basic way to think about the role is to think about how um, an organization can fulfill its duty of care to its employees to protect the employees, the facilities, the assets, and the information of an organization. And that really, that spectrum really covers the duty of care principle as it applies to employees, visitors, and clients, clients when they're visiting, and clients that entrust their critical business information to um, to you um, in order to transact whatever business you're doing with them. And um, I, I assume, Joe, you'd also include stakeholders, the investors in a company as well. Uh, of course, limited partners and investors who are engaged in transactions with companies uh, also are entrusting and placing an awful lot of trust in in an organization when they turn over their um, their information um, and investments uh, to a company. So uh, so it's, it's just essentially important that the chief security officer um, in this modern era um, be a business leader and help advise the businesses um, as they transact their business um, to to um, to manage the risk associated with um, whether it's on-site meetings or assets or information that is, is shared with them. It really has to be a fully holistic approach in the way organizations think about risk when it comes to security. Um, and I think incumbent upon um, a security officer um, in the development of a strategy is really identifying the unique set of risks that exist for that op- for that company and for the and for their business operations. No two private equity companies, no two banks share the same set of risks um, when it comes to their operations. Each organization is different. And I think uh, what we've seen uh, as a trend uh, over the last decade is for um, the role of the security officer has become more complex. Um, It's more collaborative with different stakeholders within an organization, legal, compliance, business operations, HR, um, and it's essential that there be very tight communications and collaboration between those groups. Um, and then it doesn't end there. Um, collaboration with um, clients, um, investors, 
um, is also essential. It, the, the line doesn't end when an investment is made or when somebody or a vendor is, is um, doing work to support your business operations. Really, there has to be strong collaboration between all of those groups to make sure that um, security is being achieved at all of the levels where it's necessary. And as we see in breaches every day, whether it's a breach of data, where somebody's personal information was compromised, whether it's an account takeover um, um, and money has been diverted, or it's a safety and security issue when a visitor um, or a client uh, is coming to um, an office space um, and then they encounter um, a dangerous situation, um, either in the lobby or in space, disgruntled employees, domestic violence that creeps into the workplace, and of course, as we all know, sadly, the active shooter situations that um, seem to be accelerating in frequency. No, Joe, at each of your positions, uh, you've played an active role, uh, I'll call it as a risk manager, uh, assisting in what I'll refer to as the education and training to prevent certain situations from happening and for people to know what they need to do in those situations. And then in a phrase that has taken on increasing meaning, uh, you've put together business continuity plans that in the event of a certain scenario, uh, what does a company do, et cetera. And I love uh, your reference to uh, a collaborative process. And maybe you can um, talk a little bit about um, sort of how you have been working on a collaborative basis with you know, some of the chief risk officers inside a company, the business people themselves, uh, suppliers, the vendors, um, and HR, uh, to think about avoiding problems in the first instance, but also to make sure that um, there are there is a business continuity plan in place, whether it's because something happens at the company or something more exogenous, uh, to a particular city or location or possibly an industry. That really is a very good point to focus on because, um, of course, what the one of the things the pandemic has done for organizations is um, give them visibility to the inadequacy or, if not inadequacy, inaccuracy of their business continuity plans. What, what do I mean by that? I, I think... As organizations have gone through the process of documenting their business continuity plans, of course, they didn't have exactly real-world examples to validate their plans. Now, of course, there are some examples in the recent past. We have Hurricane Sandy for companies that were impacted in the Mid-Atlantic and New England and, of course, hurricanes um, from time to time. But I, I think what we've learned is that those situations were very different than a situation like this where, quite interestingly, there was plenty of time actually to prepare for the work from home as as the pandemic spread west across Asia to Europe to the United States. There was plenty of time to prepare, plenty of time to get your most critical employees, let's say traders, set up at home to trade at home, give them the right equipment and screens and all of that. But I think once folks began to work from home, um, and it began to be 30 days to 60 days to 90 days now to 13 months and counting. 
um, some of the things that folks documented in their business impact analyses and their business continuity plans proved not to be accurate. Things that they thought were mission-critical processes um, turned out not to be. Things they didn't understand um, or document um, turned out to be um, disruptive and, and posed challenges. Let's give a very basic example. Um, the ability to print at home in highly regulated companies, um, um, investment banks and banks, um, can be easily, and, and record phone calls, right, for trading activities. Those are things easy to do when folks are on the trading floor. You can regulate printing, you can restrict printing, you can record calls. Um, many companies were not prepared to um, have people print only things that they could print and needed to print um, in compliance with rules uh, at home um, or have the capability to do recording um, and have quality recordings of business transactions uh, over the telephone at home. So when you, I think you really, it's interesting to look at the most basic, easy examples like the ones I just gave. Um, and folks thought that those were so simple that they didn't plan around them and they actually tr um, turned out to be the most uh, challenging for organizations. Joe, you've referenced um, pandemics, uh, climate events, um, active shooters and general safety and security. And I know uh, broadly there's a term crisis management uh, where you've been at the epicenter for your for various companies. And uh, it could be a cyber event. It could be a threat against an executive. It could be a particular uh, event at a plant. And uh, one of the things just, uh, again, for everyone's context, for people who are not familiar with Blackstone, which is uh, one of the world's, if not the world's leading private equity fund, it's actually a, um, it's a series of many different businesses and many different lines that, Joe, I know you've had various responsibilities for, but maybe you can talk to us about the role of the chief security officer as a crisis manager and what that means. You know, I think um, over the course of a private sector career that's been now 20 years plus, of course, the many different shapes and sizes of crises um, have presented themselves over that time frame. Um, you've named some of them uh, quite rightly. It's natural disasters such as hurricanes and earthquakes, disgruntled employees who um, have brought violence into the workplace, um, terrorist incidents like in Mumbai with the uh, Taj Hotel uh, bombing, of course, 9-11 um, and other examples in other cities, uh, coups in Turkey um, and sort of all other shapes and sizes of crises. And, um, you know, the learnings from that is um, is just really the criticality of, of, of collaborating with internal folks um, in all different departments to make sure that the needs of the organization are uh, met um, as quickly um, as possible and in a comprehensive way. Um, and, and, and practicing and being ready for those sorts of things um, um, is really so critically important. We know that thinking about, talking about, and running through different exercises and scenarios is really essential to um, good performance during 
uh, an event. Let me, let me give some examples. So any good business continuity program is going to have crisis management um, routine built into it. So the assignment of crisis teams uh, at the enterprise level, at regional levels, um, at the business unit level, because there could be a crisis that affects business one business unit but doesn't affect another business unit. So you never want to rely on um, cr- a set of crisis leaders where, that don't understand the business operations um, or the region um, where the crisis is occurring. And once you have your infrastructure set up, you have to practice. Um, and there's many different ways to do that, but at a minimum, presenting a good range of scenarios to your crisis leaders, your crisis teams, uh, be it across physical security examples and cyber examples, is a good way to make sure that you could perform well. Um, as I said earlier, many crises um, you don't have the luxury of being able to prepare for, like in the pandemic. We had about three to four weeks to prepare from working from home. So the crisis team was meeting and talking about that at, at large companies that have good muscle memory about this. But of course, in a terrorist attack, or an active shooter situation, you don't have the luxury of being able to plan and think through things and engage outside counsel and engage outside experts. Your internal team needs to be ready to go. So you need to have on speed dial all of the people that you think and expertise that you think you'll need, whether it's internal or external, and you'll need to have practiced that. It's very difficult to connect to a conference bridge in a crisis. So people have had to have practiced it. Um, They have to understand how they will be um, contacted in, in a moment's notice when something needs to occur. Um, and so um, we've tried to provide a good uh, array of practice for our crisis team. And really what we have seen um, is excellent performance by our crisis leaders, um, which includes all of the functional disciplines, HR, legal, compliance, um, corporate communications, external re- relations, public affairs, and of course, our business operations leaders. Um, it, the collaborative process has to include um, being able to get as much information as you possibly can um, about the organization, how it's impacting its people, how it's impacting its clients, how it's impacting its operations um, in those very first meetings. So um, it's been my view to hold um, um, twice a year scenarios, a physical scenario and then a cyber scenario so that the team can be exposed to as many um, examples as possible. Um, Of course, for regulatory purposes, it's really important that um, the guidelines be followed to make sure that your program documentation and your testing and exercise programs meet with regulatory compliance. In in some cases, that will be the FFIEC. In other cases, it would be the um, 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 SEC or or whoever the primary regulator is. And so I I think it's very important to collaborate with counsel um, and outside outside risk advisors uh, to make sure that um, your program and your documentation is compliant, at least minimally, with the requirements. But not only that, that you're that's not enough. You, you need to practice, and you need to make sure that your fo- your your crisis leaders are able to respond um, and know what to do um, on a moment's notice. Joe, having been on some of those calls and watch you lead process of continuity and crisis communications. Um, Certainly one of the lessons I took away was that um, a crisis is a bad time to practice. And I saw that, you know, the benefits of 
earlier preparation seemed to bring people together and have a higher degree of confidence in terms of what had to be done. Um, one of the things that I've observed as well in terms of how you think about risk and risk management uh, is the work that and relationships that you continue to maintain with your peers uh, in, at various companies as well as the law enforcement community itself. Uh, a lot of lip service is paid to what I'll refer to as public and private sector initiatives and collaboration. Um, but I think it'd be helpful if people understood uh, a little bit about how you stay informed and how you're in a position to think through issues, hopefully before they occur, and warn people about them. But when there is an event, how you're able to respond. So just a, a bit about the importance, I'll call it the non-technology aspects of your job. Relationship building, bridge building, and having a network of peers within the private sector, but also uh, the relationships with the law enforcement community. Of course, you said it well, David. I think the importance of collaborating with peers and with law enforcement is really essential to being able to successfully navigate any of the different things that would come across a chief security officer's radar in, in any given year. I've always stayed very close to the FBI, federal, other federal law enforcement agencies, and local law enforcement agencies, both uh, law enforcement as well as prosecutors, uh, because those, it's important to have those relationships in place so that you can take counsel and advice from them when an incident occurs without having to fumble around and, and, and try to identify the right, the right person to call. You know, the importance of that really can't be overstated. And then one of the things that has been a great asset is collaborating with peers. Um, there is an uh, outstanding confidential collaboration platform that exists between um, um, us in the sort of global risk management profession um, where we can sh be confident in sharing information with each other um, and trust each other to um, not apply attribution to that um, uh, to where there could be, um, there's no confidential or um, um, trade secret information is shared. But for example, think of how um, important it has been to understand what return to office strategies are for peers and for other financial institutions and other industries. That's incredibly informative, not necessarily in your decision making, but to bring that back to your crisis team and be able to say, um, I've collaborated with law enforcement agencies and peers um, and this is the way those organizations are thinking about um, returning to office, or this is how those organizations are thinking about um, workplace violence training for their employees, or this is how those organizations are thinking about active shooter situations for their employees, or here's the vendors that they've used. And not just the collaboration, David, um, think about the value of a post-mortem data when it comes to what happened in an actual active shooter situation. And the odds are that many of us will never experience that. But how valuable um, would it be to speak with peers who have gone through those crisis situations, whether it's an earthquake, 
an active shooter situation, a workplace violence situation that's long-term and going on within an organization. That information is so valuable um, as you prepare your strategy, as you prepare your crisis uh, team scenarios, um, and law enforcement is a great partner in that as well. Um, The FBI will come in to exercises and meet with your crisis team, and their role might be as an outside advisor where they can only ask, answer questions or comment when um, there's a phone call placed to them. But they're sitting in the room sharing real case examples of what they saw at other companies, um, whether it was a cyber breach or a crime of violence. Um, and that is incredibly valuable. Um, and so the relationships, um, um, both with peers um, and with law enforcement, is really incredibly valuable to preparedness. So, Joe, hopefully we've, you've been of help in expanding people's understanding of the chief security officer as being someone who goes well beyond physical security, is actually a risk manager, crisis manager, someone who figures prominently in terms of thinking through business continuity issues. I'd like to add one more thing uh, to the sort of the job description, which is trusted confidant, because very often things can occur both within the walls of an organization or beyond the walls. Sometimes a personal matter involving a loved one, sometimes just a question about a potential transaction, directionally how to think about some things that you know may be weighing on the C-suite or their board. And maybe you can talk about you know, the role of the chief security officer as a trusted confidant in terms of decision-making and in terms of some of the issues that, you know, can arise that can have an impact on the business but may not be part of the nine-to-five or nine-to-six or nine-to-seven hours uh, or the or the four walls of an office. Yeah, that, that that's really a, an excellent um topic to to explore and I think it David I think it extends to both non-traditional um, asks from within a company to uh, ones that impact um, sort of life outside of the office let me start with the first in all of my private sector experiences I think uh, and and mine a cup mine are unique because many of them, I was appointed as the inaugural chief security officer of those organizations. So they didn't have prior experience um, or um, something to inform what that ought to look like. And I think you're right. I think when someone comes in, they assume that is the guns, guards, and alarms, to use that phrase. And it is. In many cases, those are the things that are the basic blocking and tackling, controlling access at the lobby level, controlling access at the floors, um, preventing uh, risk from entering the building, right? That's the guns, the guards, and the alarms, preventing intrusions and all of that stuff. But, you know, I think it's um, relationships and positive uh, outcomes that help the business to see um, the additional value, um, which I would argue exceeds um, the value that um, the guns, guards, and alarms programs um, can be to an organization. But that's important. I'm not undermining that, right? The facilities have to be secure so that Employees and visitors are safe and secure in the workplace. That that's 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 basic security one on one. 
But I think um, as I have been engaged in all of my organizations in looking into um, um, a, 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 a threat that might have come in by email or was left on someone's voicemail or came in in a letter, uh, hard copy letter, um, or a comment that a disgruntled employee made when he or she was being terminated. I think the value of the output of what we do um, then becomes more um, visible to people in, in thinking about how that level of analysis um, and thoughtfulness and recommendations that come into managing that risk uh, present really very differently than than what the, um, you know, sort of what the um, regular perception is of a security uh, department. And so as you do that, as you provide those kinds of things, people recognize, you know what, um, I, I begin to get calls a year into the, all of the previous jobs that I mentioned say, you know what, Joe, we're doing this de- deal um, in Turkey or in, uh, in, in, in um, Brazil. Um, yeah, we've got our outside counsel and our outside accounting firm, our big four firm. We, we know the financials in and out. We've evaluated the uh, financial statements, the business opportunity. We know what the growth looks like. Um, but can you help us think about what kinds of brand risk might we be taking on by doing um, work in this jurisdiction? Are there things that the introduction of an American brand in these jurisdictions bring that we haven't thought about in our diligence uh, uh, preparations with with lawyers and, and accountants? Um are there travel considerations? We're going to be traveling there a lot more frequently from the U.S. What kinds of things do we need to be thinking about that? All of those things um, are things that many organizations don't think about. They don't think about all of the categories of risk. Of course, it's in their muscle memory to think about financial risk um, and looking at what the business uh, projections are. But um, it, it is really something that I have seen as a repetitive pattern in the roles that I've been in. Um, and David, those then evolve into what you also said. Um, there might be um, other activities that involve family members, travel by family members, or circumstances that a parent or child encounter um, that enter into the, into the dialogue where people will call you as a trusted advisor and say, you know what? Um, my son was off at college or my mom is going off on a trip to the Middle East um, or to South America. And Joe, we'd really like your counsel and advice because, um, you know, there was this business example um, a year or two ago where we got great value out of the um, research and advice that you gave. So I, I do think um, people are beginning to think about security um, in a much different way than had been traditionally than it had been traditionally thought about, and security officers, I think, have a lot to offer um, individuals, executives, and organizations as they transact business, both in their um, business life and in their personal lives. Joe, thanks. And what should be obvious to the audience, and I know is obvious for the various uh, places where you worked, so much of the role of the chief security officer. Um, and we can, we can talk about, you know, the wide range of things that you've been asked to manage and respond to. But all this also adds up to uh, also serving as a steward or a guardian of, you use the word, uh, of the brand. I'll use the word of uh, reputational risk management. 
helping to preserve the reputation of of a firm. Um, obviously, when things are not handled correctly, and I don't care whether it's within the cyber realm, it could be, you know, active uh, physical violence. It could be civil unrest and increasing number of demonstrations that companies are subjected to. It could deal with the behavior or the travel, uh, or as you said, you know, something that goes wrong with an investment uh, in a particular location. Uh, this also all adds up to reputational protection. And uh, I love the um, description you gave about the continued learning and continued in, in information flow, intelligence flow from maintaining a network uh, within other people, within other firms, with the professionals uh, who manage security, as well as with law enforcement, which is often misconstrued. It is there, believe it or not, notwithstanding enforcement proceedings, so much of what um, law enforcement and uh, various regulatory agencies try to do is to prevent the problems and are often very, very uh, giving. So I'll end with one note. Um, wherever Joe has worked, um, various people within that sector, that industry, or even unrelated industries uh, knew they could reach him to pick his brain. And that became a two-way street. Similarly, when law enforcement had a question or needed something, they knew they didn't have to drop a subpoena on a particular organization. Uh, they could pick up the phone and begin to navigate that with Joe, and Joe knew how to handle information appropriately, and if a subpoena was necessary, so be it. But that also created a uh, two-way street where Joe was able to pick up uh, the phone. And those are often the things that are not necessarily recognized and appreciated in terms of the role of the chief security officer. So, Joe, thank you um, so much for sharing both your background, your approaches, uh, the insights, and uh, we look forward to continuing contributions. And obviously, we're collaborating with you on a, a number of fronts. So uh, that's been a great privilege and honor as well. So thanks again for spending time, Joe. Thank you, David. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. The hub of RAIN service is the democratization of information and expertise. Subscribe to RAIN's core membership and let us power your business to success. Learn more at RAINnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.